Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Malcolm X. The autobiography of Malcolm X is the story of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley and was published in 1965 after Malcolm X's death. And the film adaptation was directed by Spike Lee and came out in 1992, the year we were born. Yes, <laughs> we're that old. Yes, we are. Slash young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a Spike Lee joint. It is about a very famous um, uh, figure in American history, world history, and we're really excited we're getting to talk about this one. Definitely. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X um, maybe five or six years ago and had never seen the movie. And so this has been kind of like on our long list for a while. Yeah. Um, and now seemed like a really great time um, for those of you that live in the United States. You know that the Black Lives Matter movement has been very important and um, has brought up so many different emotions and conversations that people are having. And it just feels really great that we can also have a conversation um, about this as well in doing this as an episode. Yeah. And I feel like Spike Lee is a great person to tell this story. I mean, first of all, as a black man, like, you know, it's great that he was given this story. Yeah. Um, And I mean, he's just a really well-known filmmaker. I mean, we were looking at his filmography today. He's made so many movies, so many over 30 movies. Yeah, just a ton. And uh, he's very always thinking about these things, like even though they're stories of the past, thinking about how they tie in to the present. Mm -hmm. And as we were saying, this movie came out in 1992 and this film actually begins in a it was a surprising way, but a really interesting way by showing footage of uh, the Rodney King beating. Yeah. And uh, this is intercut with an American flag that is burning mm-hmm. into the form of an X. With um, Malcolm X doing like a voiceover yeah. in one of his speeches. And it's really, it really hits home and it probably hit home even stronger when it came out because this was right after... Um, Rodney King was brutally beaten and the riots that came afterwards. So Spike Lee is immediately tapping into the fact that this movie came out in 1992, but it's about a man in like the 50s and 60s, but the issues are still relevant in 92. Mm -hmm. And now here we are in 2020 being like, yep, still relevant today. In fact, even more so. He did something similar with Black Klansmen uh, showing footage of the Charlottesville protests Mm -hmm. um so he he has done this uh in other films as well and i think it's a very um relevant interesting way to kind of like you know just look at these past stories and just kind of immediately how they tie to the present yeah i think it's really cool and it starts off the movie in a really uh exciting way and the movie actually starts with um malcolm kind of living in Boston, he's kind of already an adult-ish or like a teen. Yeah. Um, But obviously his autobiography starts when he's a kid. Yeah. um, He was born in a... Well, he wasn't born, but he grew up mostly in Lansing, Michigan. Yeah. And he was one of eight children, and his father was a pastor. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But 
it was interesting though because he and i forget the term but he you know specifically focused on black people and more specifically like believing that black people should return to africa essentially he followed the teachings of marcus garvey um which was pretty controversial at the time and wanted black people to return to Africa because, you know, basically they saw America as hostile to black folks and being like, we can't stay here. We need to go back. Um, and actually getting really um, persecuted by like the Ku Klux Klan and other yeah. white organizations in um, the town that they were living in to the point that at one point their house was burned down and they mm. almost didn't get out in time. And also leading to the events of Malcolm X's father's death, where it was officially ruled a suicide, but um, basically everyone knew that the Klan or some other type of white supremacist group had done it to him. Yeah, and this is clearly something that was like very kind of shocking and just completely, it was the beginning of his the kind of disintegration of their family. Yeah. This is like kind of... Um, flashed back to a little bit there isn't a lot from this time period of his life that's kind of covered in the movie but the death of his dad is one of those Mm -hmm. uh and kind of how afterwards uh his mother trying to raise all the kids and also having to deal with um social workers coming and kind of like uh the government interfering and kind of like prying the family apart intentionally and seriously breaking up their family eventually putting their mother in an institution claiming that she was mentally unstable and separating all the kids going off into foster homes which happened to malcolm as well and he ends up in this kind of home for troubled children for a while and he goes to this mostly white school and it seems like he's doing well for a while. And this was such an interesting part of the book because um, he felt kind of accepted by the white students. But at the same time, he was facing this casual racism constantly. Yeah, it was so I mean, I, I think you imagine before integration that like black and white kids like were never in the same schools. But in this instance, like Malcolm was one of a few black kids in this school. Yeah. And it was very almost kind of like sad and disturbing because on one hand he was accepted he was made like class president even yeah he got some of the best grades in his class but also just the blatant and horrendous like racism that he faced yeah just an onslaught on a daily basis yeah and there's a specific incident that the movie flashes back to that he brings up a lot in the book as well as which is when a teacher basically tells him that he can never be anything because Malcolm wants to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And the teacher kind of just tells him that you're not never going to be anything because you're black. Yeah, he's like, you're best off like working with your hands. Like you could be a carpenter. Yeah. And it was kind of a thing that like, really just settled in his mind, I think, for a lot of years. Yeah, afterwards. I think it really disturbed him. Yeah. Uh, and around this time he meets, um, a half sister of his, Ella, Mm -hmm. who lives in Boston and she made a huge impact on his life as a kid. She was kind of one of the first, um, just very independent, proud black women he'd ever met in his life. Proud black person even. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she, you know, was very strong, very self-sufficient. She had married uh, a couple times, but, um, was very resilient and was kind of like, you know, didn't really need a man to support her because she was her own person and was living her own life in Boston. And he also really loved being in a world full of black people instead of what he was in 
currently, which is like this all white school pretty much and Mm -hmm. feeling very lost. So he eventually uh, moves in with Ella and moves to Boston. And this begins his introduction into like black culture and also into kind of music, dancing, this Mm -hmm. whole subculture and um, just kind of being like this cool guy. Yeah, he knew like every prominent black musician from yeah. <laughs> like this era. Yeah. Um cuz he worked in like music halls and stuff and then also became just like really into that scene like going to dances, doing mm-hmm. doing the Lindy Hop. The Lindy Hop as they say. Oh my gosh. So the movie begins with this great scene. Yeah. Where Malcolm is getting his first conk, which is when they put lye in your hair in order to relax it. And this is something that I don't think it really still happens, but to some extent it does with like these products that will relax naturally kinky hair to look more straight or more wavy. Yeah. And this was like the big fashion choice of the day. And it's a great scene because Malcolm is like, okay, this is fine. And then there's these other like older black men that are in the barbershop kind of heckling him (laughs) and like laughing and being like, oh, you're getting your first conk. Like it's going to burn, man. Like it literally burns your scalp. Yeah. And it's so funny watching them make it too because it's like, eggs and potatoes and like the lye and just kind of the ingredients they (laughs) use for it um but yeah he talks about in the book how it was like the first time especially burned just horrifically it's just like really just i mean it's like a chemical burn on your scalp yeah um but it does straighten and relax the hair and he was like for ever since then he um got his hair conked for like many years basically until he went to prison yeah uh, so yeah, that was a great scene to kind of introduce us and him in his zoot suit. Yeah, him and Shorty. Shorty, uh, and Shorty is a friend of his in Boston, but in the movie is played by Spike Lee. Yes, which is cool. Yeah, he's he's great in the role. I really liked seeing him. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because like at this time, you know, it's like just Denzel Washington, and you are never told what his age is. Yeah, but it's so funny because in the book. He was still only like 15. Yeah. When he was like going to these clubs and dancing and like. Yeah. Smoking and drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Because he looked older than he was. So he could oftentimes pass, um, you know, as at least 18. Yeah. Uh, And like reading the book, you'd read like these whole what seemed like big passages of his life, like these big changes. He's like, yeah. And about that time I was like 16 and I'm (laughs) like, like, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he actually ends up meeting this white woman, Sophia, and she's older and she thinks he is too. And they begin a relationship and she's definitely seen as this like social status thing because much like the conking of the hair in this emulation of like the whiteness and trying to be kind of more white, having a white woman as like your girlfriend was super like a huge status symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially walking into a dance club with a white woman was kind of seen as like, like you said, a status symbol. Um, and their relationship's like very interesting. Yeah. Because she is, I mean, they see each other a lot. They hang out a lot, but also, over the course of them seeing each other, she gets married to a white man yeah. who like never knows about any of this, this whole other life she's leading. Yeah. And there is a lot of interesting discussion too in the book, just about like the crossover of white people into black um, culture. Black culture. Yeah. Like some white people going to like black dances and being like, 
entertained almost by like hanging out with black people and stuff and like he talks at one point about like there's always like one white guy who's like using like the most slang out of anyone who's got like the most wild zoot suit who's just like trying to really put himself in black culture I'm like wow white people appropriating black culture (laughs) since 1935 (laughs) exactly (laughs) uh yeah so but like i i thought all those you know, and the aspects of like a lot of black men dating white women or trying to and stuff mm-hmm. like just a lot of interesting stuff to read between that crossover of black and white people at that time. Yeah. And he spends a lot of time in Boston. He lives up in Boston and then he gets a job um, working as a porter on trains for a while. And this leads him to explore Harlem and he immediately falls in love with Harlem. So decides to move there. Yeah. And Harlem is kind of like this next step. He's like where he thought Boston was kind of this like, yeah, black cultural hub. Like Harlem was like the place like to actually be. Uh, And so that was like this huge, like once he got there, he's like, this is where I have to be now. Yeah. And he talks a lot about like the, the all the different restaurants and bars and like the people who would frequent them and the kind music of scene. the music, the mixing of like uh, well-known musicians and like kind of but like also like pimps and prostitutes and kind of just like this blend of people. And yeah. And Malcolm pretty quickly becomes a hustler and he talks about how Harlem is filled with hustlers and that. There's this quote that I just wanted to mention. Almost everyone in Harlem needed some kind of hustle to survive and needed to stay high in some way to forget what they had to do to survive. So this idea of like they needed everyone needed some kind of hustle and it was because there were really no jobs to be had, nothing that was like well paying. So, you know, Malcolm did a ton of different hustles. You know, he sold weed for a while. He did like burglaries for a while. Yeah, he was involved with numbers. Yeah. The kind of lottery that they all kind of participated in. Yeah. And he also was a steerer, which is like kind of like a pimp, but not really. It was more like someone, if they're recommending a book to you, but instead they're recommending prostitutes to you. Yeah, he was like the <laughs> the like Foursquare, like the Google search yeah. of that time. They're like, hey, what are you looking for? I'll like point you in the right direction. Exactly. Like, <laughs> what kind of prostitutes are you looking for? Like, what kind of drugs? Yeah, and- what kind of kinky sex are you into (laughs) (laughs) exactly uh and that was also another i I don't know there was just so much to this like portion of his life that was like so interesting yeah oh my god and it goes on for so long too he talks about so much and like just what harlem was like and i think it's so cool to get insight into this time and place yeah because i mean harlem is not the same anymore obviously yeah um so it's kind of cool this microcosm of what life was like at this time And the movie obviously has to kind of simplify this because the book is sort of all over the place. Yeah, the book was just like one hustle after the other, one thing. And like him kind of like definitely sliding further and further into kind of uh, being a career criminal and kind of like into drugs, into drugs. Yeah, kind of like understanding, you know, at one point he talks about like. Uh, one of the most common traps a hustler falls into is like becoming greedy, acquiring too much money. Like he's really learning how to like kind of get around the police, be aware. Survive. Yeah, survive. Exactly. And mm-hmm. and it's also kind of like definitely what he wants to in a way. Like he talks about like one of his top three fears was having a job. Yeah. Like he just didn't want and I mean, he was like a teenager for most of this time. Too. Yeah. So yeah. like, <laughs> no, like I'm not shocked at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so the film, 
kind of, um, like you said, really condenses a lot of this. And it does a lot of that around one character in his life who is known as West Indian Archie. And he's kind of a gangster in the Harlem world. And he leads this numbers racket, um, which is this kind of lottery gambling system that almost everyone in Harlem participates in. And it's a huge money-making scheme. And of course, there's so much corruption involved. Like the police are involved. There's bankers involved. There's gangsters. It's crazy. The book explained it a lot, but also I was never... Also, we have no idea. Yeah, I was never clear (laughs) on how it worked at all. Yeah. But um, West Indian Archie kind of takes him under his wing and gets him involved in this business, gives him a gun, um, that whole thing. And this is sort of the main plot of the movie, showing us him getting involved in this kind of criminal lifestyle. And there's this showdown showdown that happens between them where um, Malcolm, and he's known as Detroit Red in these times, um, insists that he put in these numbers... And that his numbers hit, so he yeah. got money on them. And West Indian Archie, who never gets a number wrong, yeah, he never writes he them didn't. down, yeah, uh, but he never like gets. He just remembers them all the time. Uh, yeah, he and he does pay Malcolm, but then later claims that it wasn't those numbers, mm-hmm. and this creates like a huge conflict between them because Archie feels like he got scammed, yeah, and even though, especially in the book, he talks about like. I could have paid him back easily and it wouldn't have been a big deal except for the fact that the reputation was on the line. Yeah. Archie felt like he had been hustled and he like needed to make an example out of Malcolm. And so it kind of creates this like really um, tense standoff between the two of them. And they're in this impossible situation where they can't get out of it because of like the street reputations that Mm -hmm. they both have. Um, And actually Malcolm ends up having to flee Harlem because there's too much danger. In the movie, he almost gets shot and just literally like goes out a window. Oh my God. Denzel Washington <laughs> scrambling out that window was oh, so it was tense. amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and actually Shorty ends up coming to pick him up in the book. Yeah. And he leaves uh, Harlem and goes back to Boston with Shorty. And so he, Shorty, Sophia's there too. They kind of create this whole gang. And he's like, okay, guys, I have this great idea how to make Boston better for all of us. Burglary. Yes. And they're all like, yes. We're all in on (laughs) this. He doesn't have to convince anyone. No, no. (laughs) Not even Sophia. She's like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Sophia's like, I'm involved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's also this like great scene, which was in the book as well. And it's so nuts where... Uh, in order to establish himself as kind of the leader of this group, uh, Malcolm gets a gun, puts one bullet in it, and plays Russian roulette with him and... Uh, Rudy. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this like wild scene in the book he just talks about. He only did it to himself. Yeah. But everyone was like freaking out. And he was like, you have to establish that you're not afraid to die. And, and that like, you're like the craziest among them. Yeah. And no one will question you. Mm-hmm. And Denzel in this scene in the film does such a good job. Just his intensity and... It's so good. And later... Shorty is asking him, he's like, did you really have a bullet in there? And he and then Malcolm shows him that he had palmed the bullet. Yeah. And it's actually really funny because we read the book and in the book, there's no explanation about how he did it or if he really did it or not. Yeah. We assume that he really put a bullet in there, fired 
three shots and didn't nothing happened just by pure luck. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually in the epilogue, we find out from Alex Haley that Malcolm revealed to him later on that he had palmed the bullet. <laughs> yeah. He just didn't want to admit it. Yeah. It was it's just was really funny. It is it's funny to get because I remember reading that in the book and kind of being like Whoa. <laughs> wow, he actually like because I was like almost waiting for the reveal, kind of like how we get it in the movie. Yeah. To be like, I never actually had a bullet in there. Uh so I like that in in the book you don't get that understanding till like the end into until the someone else is talking about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh so they begin these uh burglaries. Once again, another interesting thing to read about, kind of like the way they like cased houses picked them mm-hmm. how sent the white women out to like kind of case them for them because yeah. they were like more trustworthy and then how they would show up in the night and all this stuff and it's funny too in the movie there's a scene where they get caught mm-hmm. and actually malcolm is getting his hair conked at the time it's like a combination of like two real things that happen yeah and i like that they put them together because he has the lie in his hair and he's like, okay, I got to wash it out now. And then like the water won't turn on in the sinks and they're like frantically trying to let, and he's like, oh my God, my head is burning. My head is burning. And he has to put his head in the toilet and that's when the cops show up. (laughs) (laughs) That that story did happen minus the police happening to show up at that point. Yeah. But I, I loved Spike Lee combining those two scenes was, was excellent. Mm -hmm. But Usually a burglary charge, what Malcolm says, is about two years. For first-time offenders. Yeah, but because of the involvement of the white women, both Shorty and Malcolm get 10 years. And it's interesting because, specifically in the book, he talks about the fact that, like, the white judges, the lawyers, everyone was horrified by the fact that these white women were sleeping with these black men. Yeah. And they're like, they're, they're like good middle class, nice white women. Like, what are you doing with these black idiots, basically? Yeah. And how this judgment kind of came down harsher on them because of this. Yeah. And I mean, to like these white people, this is like the ultimate fear of like black people that they're yeah. going to like corrupt their like women and like, yeah. Um, Steal their belongings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but I, I really loved um Malcolm's like perspective on that. He's like, everyone was so much more concerned with the fact that we had like involved white women and that we that's were sleeping. That's all they wanted to talk yeah, to me that's about. That's all they cared about. Yeah. was like getting the deets on that. <laughs> It was funny too, because they get convicted on multiple counts. So each and each, um, charge basically is eight to 10 years. And so they read them all out and Shorty doesn't understand that these sentences are to be served concurrently, which means at the same time. So it's not like 10 years for this and then 10 years. Yeah. It's like you serve them all at once, but he like faints in the courtroom (laughs) because he thinks that it's like over a hundred years worth of time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That was a great part also. Cause that was weird to laugh at, but it's, it's funny. It, It is. I mean, like Spike Lee really, does a good job of like selling that moment oh my too. god him passing out is so funny yeah <laughs> uh so this leads us into uh malcolm malcolm's time in prison this is i think the turning point of the book and yeah. the movie in a lot of ways too and the turning point in malcolm's life and you can sense the shift when you're reading and watching um and malcolm kind of views prison as this time where literally he had time and space to think about his life Yeah. And to think about like the choices he had made, the choices that he had kind of been forced into and the options that he had. And 
it's so cool to hear about how much he changed and how much he grew in prison. Yeah, yeah. And this was like due to like a couple of things. Uh, One of them that I think is so interesting and the movie didn't get into it. And I understand why, because it's kind of it can be skipped over. But um, Ella, Malcolm's uh, half sister, actually fought and got him transferred to a another prison yeah a better prison yeah it was kind of like um more experimental i think yes yes so there were a lot more liberties for the prisoners like they got their own rooms a lot more resources and like classes and things they could do could take yeah Yeah. and specifically a library Mm -hmm. like a very big library and he was saying how like you know he never had an interest in learning and bettering himself But, like, when you're in prison and you have that time, he's, like, for the first time, like, myself and I think a lot of other men were, like, wow, maybe I'll actually, like, try Try to to learn. Yeah, learn new skills, learn new things. And it's, like, it's such a good example of, like, how the prison system could be used. Yeah, like, in an ideal world, like, how it could be used to, like... For rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah, that, like, you could get an education there, and, like, resources should be available, and, like, this should be a time to, like, learn and grow and think about yourself. Exactly, and he actually, like, realizes that he has really a lot of trouble reading and writing because he's trying to write to his family from prison, and his way of kind of learning is to literally copy every page of the dictionary. So yeah. he would read it and then write it down. And I mean, it's genius though, because he's learning so many new words, also improving like the way that he writes his penmanship and improving his understanding of like how language works. Yeah, this, yeah. This amazed me. <laughs> I know, it, it seems like, and I think it's like, it seems like such an absurdly huge task to undertake. Yeah. But like, if you're in prison and you have the time, like, that would be extremely beneficial to do. Mm-hmm. The movie introduces us to this character, Baines, who is not in the book, but kind of represents like a lot of different things that were happening in Malcolm's life at this time while he's in prison. And Baines is a member of the Nation of Islam. And he kind of becomes this figure in Malcolm's life in prison, being like, why are you doing this? Why are you mm-hmm. living this life? Don't you know that there are there's another way? Yeah, and it kind of like like Malcolm doesn't even know like what to make of him at first. He yeah. kind of thinks he's like fucking with him. He thinks he's trying to hustle him. He just like doesn't he can't get a beat on him. Mm-hmm. And there was a figure, a person in prison that kind of inspired Malcolm a little bit to like yeah. kind of read Study and educate more. himself. So like he's he is kind of a embodiment of that character but also he is kind of an embodiment of malcolm's brother reginald Mm -hmm. because around this time in prison reginald visited him and malcolm could tell immediately that he was like changed he was like a very different person yeah and reginald asks him he's like i can or he tells him he's like i can get you out of prison he's like i can get you out of here but like you need to do what i ask you and like yeah. Malcolm's like oh yeah like let's do it let's <laughs> yeah. all, all, what's the plan like how am I escaping and uh Reginald tells him to stop smoking and stop eating pork uh-huh and Malcolm's like I don't get it but like I'll do it all right it's a hustle <laughs> I, I'm always down for a hustle and so he's like not doing these things and he's like maybe I'll like argue that I'm crazy like maybe they'll think I'm like having like a mental cult like he, he has no idea yet why he's doing these things but he starts doing them yeah and then his brother and some of his other family members as well 
reveal to him that they're part of the nation of Islam and that they're following the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and that they believe that, you know, black people have their own religion, which is Islam, that they don't subscribe to Christianity, that they should be proud of themselves and that Malcolm can find his true destiny and purpose in this religion and that he can leave behind all of these um, substances that the white man the white man uses to keep black people down. Yeah. And this is kind of like something that's like kind of revealed almost like slowly to him where, you know, he's challenged and asked about things like, have you ever met a white person who didn't like do you wrong in some way? Yeah. And Malcolm's like, maybe one. Malcolm's like, wait, what about, no, no, no. no. Okay, no. (laughs) And like, there's another scene in the movie too, and I I can't remember if it's in the book, but they're talking about um, uh, Jackie Robinson uh, getting to play professional baseball. And everyone's like happy about it and like, you know, glad a black man is um, playing baseball. But uh, in the film, at least, uh, Baines is like, why are we celebrating this? He's like, he's like, out of all the like bullshit black people have had to deal with, like, why is this a victory? Like, why is this something we're celebrating? They're throwing us scraps. Exactly. And like, you can see Malcolm kind of like, oh, I mean, maybe you're right. Like kind of just like all these like moments where he's kind of like brought to question Mm -hmm. what he believes, what he is, you know, passionate about or what like what his life has shown him exactly yeah and in the book he actually like extensively reads and we talked about this like big library that the better prison had but he is reading like linguistic books he's reading philosophy he's reading history Mm -hmm. he is reading everything he can get his hands on and he has famously stated that his college degree came from books yeah. And from prison that he just read everything he could get his hands on and was viewing everything he read through this critical lens, which I love because, you know, he wasn't just absorbing information. He was reading it and thinking about it and processing it and filtering it through his new black consciousness as like, what have the white people done to oppress people of color in the world? Yeah. And kind of like he, he, you know, likens it to being brainwashed and talks about how so many other black people in America are brainwashed Mm -hmm. into either believing that like this is the way things are, like this is the best we can get or like being happy with like these small kind of like incremental steps. Yeah. For change. Towards like quote unquote equality. Uh, And, you know, he just starts to really analyze his life from a whole new perspective. And Mm -hmm. it's like it's very it's a very in-depth part of the book it did lose me at points um only because like he's talking about like all this philosophy all this history he's kind of just like throwing all this stuff at you and like i liked it it it, it was a bit much for me personally Mm -hmm. um but like i also think it was necessary for the story because like you don't want him to just be like oh and then i became self-educated and yeah like he really takes us through his journey yeah and he eventually decides to convert to islam and he actually has a vision of Elijah Muhammad, who is the leader of the Nation of Islam, um, leading this black Islamic group in America, and begins writing to him and eventually converts, and once he gets out of prison, joins the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Now, we should talk about the other deeper part of Nation of Islam Mm -hmm. that is revealed to him. Yeah. So first, I want to talk, though, about how 
I was like reading about it and like learning more about mm-hmm. nation is in Islam and all the things they were bringing up are like super interesting. Basically talking about like a lot of black people at the time didn't really know the horrors of slavery. They yeah. had been fed this romanticized version, like in gone with the wind where everything is just fine and dandy. And they're like, these are the actual atrocities that happened. And also how black people are forced to hate themselves because yeah. white people hate them. And so this is where like the conking of the hair comes in and the nation of Islam really like celebrates black culture, black features, black hair, mm-hmm. um, just accepting black people as they are and celebrating it yeah and you know once again this is such a like a revolutionary kind of thing for malcolm to consider and think about and they talk about like you know establishing the fact that like your last name came from the slave master of your ancestors yeah like you don't even know where you came from in africa where your tribe was where your culture is what your language was yeah you don't know like our our past was completely obliterated like we have no idea Mm -hmm. where we come from and we're told that africa is like you know just like full of savages yeah and there's like nothing there but he's like but there's like a rich history and Mm -hmm. like uh past and like you know the African people have been there for, you know, like since people existed and yeah, uh, just kind of like going on about like how much of this stuff has been kept from black people. And history just being completely whitewashed. Yeah. Just in a, a crazy amount. And I just found this part so interesting. Yes. And then they also talk too about they believe that white people are devils. And they talk about, like, white people and, like, all of the things that they've done throughout history and into now. And I'm, like, kind of hard to agree. Like, (laughs) I know. Like, how can you? How can you you disagree, you know, to say, like, one white person is a devil? You're like, well, it could be case by case. But to say white people in general are devils, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, like, the history of, especially just, like, with America, with, like, the genocide of indigenous people, the enslavement of black people, just, like... Basically, every new immigrant population that came to America, they, like, beat down. And, yeah. Like, I mean, there is, when you peel back the layers of, like, the history that white people tell, there's, like, nothing good there. No. Basically. No. Uh, and so... It, in case you needed any further proof, the, <laughs> yeah, the history that you got in high school and elementary school is bullshit. All of it's bullshit. Yeah. And I and you can it really does a good job, especially in the book of putting you in that headspace and the movie, too, that like living the life that Malcolm has up until this point and then having these truths revealed to you. There's a great scene, too, in the movie where they look up the definitions in the dictionary of black and white, Mm -hmm. like just black and white and just like all the negative connotation with black, evil, like dirty, soiled, like absence of light and then white being pure like innocent uh, innocent yeah like untouched and like all these and just malcolm reading this and being like what the fuck jesus christ what is yeah this? what the fuck yeah <laughs> um so like i think both versions do a good job of like understanding where malcolm comes from and what's being revealed to him like yeah like it's sh- it's not shocking at all that like that's the conclusion you come to yeah that, like white people are like Evil incarnate, basically. Yeah. And so we're reading about the Nation of Islam. I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow, cool. Still resonant. Awesome. And then they're like, oh, and also there's this whole like subplot in our history where Jacob, 
Jacob, Jacob's history um, or story. Is like a eugenicist who like basically genetically engineered white people <laughs> over like a thousand years. I mean, look, to be fair, like this story like compared to other religions and other stories, like it's not really No, it kind of reminds me of Mormonism and how weird and tangential and like side plot odd some of their beliefs are. Yeah. And but it's always entertaining to read about like a, a religion you're unfamiliar with and their like backstory, yeah, so to speak. And, and like, to be clear, this nation of Islam is like a cult sect in America that is actually not affiliated with Islam as a whole. No, yeah, yeah. So that, that is important. And I mean, that's not clear in the book necessarily because like Malcolm doesn't know any better at this point you know what i mean like nation of islam is like literally his only understanding of islam as a whole essentially so like he doesn't understand that like now that we're getting into the part that like is this subset of that religion Mm -hmm. um or branch of it or you know whatever you want to call it but yeah Jakob's story like a crazy scientist who is like (laughs) creating a hybrid of like black people that like went from black to brown to red to yellow until like he finally created like white people the essence of pure evil like pure evil and then like but then they were driven out also the scientists had a really big head for some reason and then all the white people were driven to europe and like lived in caves like scrounging around until like moses Got them? I don't know. (laughs) I I know, but, like, just the whole story is, like, very... It's, like, entertaining. Yeah. But also, as the reader, you're kind of like, oh... What am I reading? Oh, no. Because, like, everything else up until this point, like you said, was like, yeah, great point. This is awesome. It's great they're empowering black people. Like, yes. Uh, And then you start to go, like, okay, there's one guy, Elijah Muhammad. Who's, like, the divine speaker. And he's, like, almost, like... Like, actually divine, almost divine. Um, And Malcolm joins this religion and actually becomes a super important minister in this faith and ends up founding all these mosques all over the world and getting so many black people to join. And it's largely because of his magnetic presence, energy, and um, public speaking skills, which is something else that he developed in prison. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, and because... Nation of Islam is still very small at this point. Like he is introduced to Elijah Muhammad very early. Like he yeah. was writing letters to him in prison. And I loved the the scene in the movie mm-hmm. when he first meets him. Yeah. And he's just Denzel Washington. He's just like crying silently to himself. He's like both like, I think kind of ashamed of like where he had come from. Yeah. But also, moved. but moved by this man. And It's interesting, too, because, like, Elijah Muhammad, from what we understand in the book, at least earlier on, he seems like a very genuine person. Yeah, a lot of humility, kindness, gentleness to him, but also, you know, advocating for the empowerment of black people. Um, And despite their open um, beliefs about white people as devils, you know, they're not really violent. um, And they really advocate for... Um, a racial separation, either return to Africa or having their own country created out of America so that black people can separate. Yeah. And Malcolm does say later that like he was in such awe of Elijah Muhammad that he like adored him, this love and fear yeah. um, and almost viewed him as God and realizing later in life how dangerous it is yeah. to view anyone in that way. I agree. I, like, I, I think hopefully I think a lot of people are kind of like, 
maybe more aware of that than like they would be back then. But like when yeah. you know, like, OK, there's one guy and he's like he's everything. Yeah. You basically view him as like a god on Earth. Like that's it's definitely a problem. Yeah. And honestly, it's shocking that he was as like kind of down to earth as he was. Yeah. Like because usually you think of those people as being like egomaniacs who are like, mm-hmm. you know, just abusing their power left and right. And although Nation of Islam had its problems, it's surprising that the leader was the way he was. Yeah, so um, around this time, after Malcolm is kind of establishing all these mosques, and he he becomes the leader of one in Harlem, he's like super popular, he ends up meeting and marrying a woman in the Nation of Islam, Betty X. Yeah, and reading about it, like he was so like dedicated to like, traveling across the country, establishing mosques that like he was like, I don't have any interest in marrying or like anything like that. But then he's like, well, if I were to, maybe I would marry this one woman. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny to reading about it because like Malcolm is very in different places. He comes across as very like, um, I don't want to say cold. Yeah, a little bit. But he cold, like maybe like kind of just very analytical. Yeah. Because he talks about like, how uh, Elijah Muhammad says, like, oh, the woman you marry should be, like, r- close to the same height as you and, like, should be, like, half your age plus seven. And, Which like, is not sustainable. No. <laughs> <laughs> but just, like, all these, like, arbitrary, like, calculations, like, nothing to do with the person. No. As a human being. And so when Malcolm meets Betty, he's like, hmm, she's an appropriate height and age. Yeah. <laughs> she seems like a suitable partner. <laughs> She is played by Angela Bassett in the movie, and she is so good in the movie. And I feel like the movie really gives her more to do. Absolutely. In the book, she's hardly mentioned at all. You you would be like, wow, is he actually married? Does he have kids? Does he have a family? Yeah. Um, just because he is very busy in the Nation of Islam, speaking, traveling, etc., uh, but the movie gives them kind of a stronger bond. She's more of a has more of a personality and a character. Yeah, more of a, a stronger will, yeah. maybe like more willing to challenge Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, kind of in the in the book, it's kind of reiterated multiple times how like committed she is to him. Yeah. At one point he like changes his mind about like aspects of his like beliefs and religion. He's like, and I knew Betty would be on board with that. Like he just like his assumption is automatically like, yeah, she'll fall in line kind of. Yeah. And this like kind of leads into a discussion a bit about um, Malcolm's somewhat problematic views on women. Yeah. Um, And I mean, we do have to take into account the time and also the religion that he's a part of because Um, Even though it's not actual Islam, it does draw on a lot of Islam practices and is very patriarchal in its structure. So it doesn't really value women as more than just wives and mothers. Um, And there's a little bit I want to read from the book where Malcolm is talking about his views on women and he's specifically talking about prostitutes that he used to know. So um, he lived in a house with a lot of prostitutes And he talks about this morning rush where all of these husbands would show up to the prostitutes. Domineering, complaining, demanding wives who had just about psychologically castrated their husbands were responsible for the early rush. These wives were so disagreeable and had made their men so tense that they were robbed of the satisfaction of being men. 
To escape this tension and the chance of being ridiculed by his own wife, each of these men had gotten up early and come to a prostitute. And I'm skipping ahead a bit. And he says, the prostitute said that most men needed to know what the pimps knew. A woman should occasionally be babied enough to show her the man had affection, but beyond that, she should be treated firmly. These tough women said that it worked with them. All women, by their nature, are fragile and weak. They are attracted to the male in whom they see strength. So this kind of just encapsulates a lot of different parts in the book where Malcolm is very harsh on women, seems to not trust them, view them as kind of like conniving and weak. Um, And it just like, it's kind of unfortunate because there's so many really important things about this person, but I think it's equally important to bring up the areas in which, you know, he had problematic views, you know, there's another part where he's very dismissive about women as lesbians as well. And like, yeah, it's just, (laughs) I, yeah, no, it's like, it's very frustrating that he can have such like, like amazingly insightful views on like the struggle of like black people in America, but then kind of like, put women in this box. Yeah. You know what I mean? And not see their struggles. And I think this is especially important because when you talk about black women specifically, they face so many struggles that even black men and white women don't face because they have the double oppression of being not only, you know, oppressed based on their race, but based on their gender. And Malcolm X does have a quote that says the black women are the most oppressed in this society. Yeah. But his awareness doesn't seem to extend beyond that to like what women face, even from black men that they are, you know, there's misogyny that they face there. And so I just want to mention really briefly here, um, the idea of intersectionality, um, and that you can face multiple oppressions and that your identities can overlap. And so you can, face oppression on multiple fronts, whether that's race and gender, or it could be orientation, or it could be um, disability. There's so many different factors. Um, But actually, Kimberly Crenshaw, a black woman, first coined this term um, intersectional to describe her experiences as a black woman facing both race and gender oppression. So um, I'm definitely going to link a TED Talk that she gave about this that was really great um, on our Patreon. So Check that out. Um, Just really important to think about. Yeah, I mean, you know, as prolific and impactful as a figure uh, that Malcolm X was in history and for as much as he did, like, it's still important to address the areas where maybe he was lacking. Yeah. Or where, like, it's frustrating because you wish, you know, he just brought that same energy to, like, representing women and, like, what they struggled with as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. uh, the the movie also kind of takes like an interesting view of this or kind of I think it tries to soften this. I think it both tries to like represent this aspect of Malcolm, but also softening it. Because yeah. like there's a scene when he's talking to Betty about women should be this height. Women should be half the age plus seven. Mm-hmm. And it it does this smartly in terms of how it's presented by cutting to Elijah Muhammad. Yeah. Telling uh, Malcolm these things. So it seems like he's just parroting it. Yeah, and it kind of makes it seem like he maybe doesn't truly believe this or like he is simply like absorbing it from Elijah. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure anything in at least the actual text of his autobiography leads me to believe that like those views 
solely came from Elijah Muhammad. Because, like, even after his falling out with Elijah, yeah. he never was like, oh, yeah, like, I was too hard on women in this way. Yeah. Or, you know, my views were limited in this way. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how, like, accurate it is to take that stance on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I do appreciate them at least representing that quality of of Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he and Betty get married, mm-hmm. and this doesn't slow down his public um, career. And he quickly becomes this iconic figure, um, not only in the black community and in the black Muslim community, but in the white press and just kind of gains national attention. Yeah, I mean, he travels the country speaking at colleges, like to the press, like at different events, mm-hmm. um, just kind of like constant and, and like all for the sake of like spreading uh, the beliefs of Nation of Islam. He talks about always being conscientious of like saying uh, the honor- representing. Yes. Elijah Muhammad teaches these things. Nation of Islam is about this. He was like always trying to like never let it be about him. Um, but I mean, that still didn't stop the fact that like he became the face of, uh, nation of Islam Yes, and what America referred to as like the black Muslim in -hmm. America. And he distinguished himself from a lot of other important black figures at this time by kind of being anti civil rights. Um, and not really exactly anti just being, um, giving a different perspective and really his ideas of not wanting integration and in fact, wanting to separate from the white man and to have blacks have their own country and their own um, area and just be free from white people. Yeah. He like so many other civil rights leader at the time, like wanted what was best for the black people of America, but his idea of like the way to go about that and the best direction for that were like, Uh, very different and contrasted and like I think especially now like we've kind of like especially we've taken Martin Luther King yeah and have kind of just made him the sole face of the civil rights movement and like the sole voice of it yeah and like nonviolence, and that's what everyone believed at that point and that's what it was all about and it's like I think reading this book it's such a great contrasting voice and it's like hey, I don't really believe in those things. Like, mm-hmm. and here are, like, at one point he made a good argument against, like, the Freedom Riders. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think we commonly think to as, like, a like a great story, you know, about the civil rights movement. But he was like, there was a lot of people leaving New York for Mississippi uh, to fight, you know, uh, oppression. He's like, but there's plenty of oppression in New York. Yeah. He's like... Those were those people not like fighting it there. Like he's yeah. like, I've traveled the country and I can tell you it's just as bad in New York as, as it is in Mississippi. And you're mm-hmm. kind of like, that's a pretty valid point. You know what I mean? Like at least hearing those other stances and knowing that like this wasn't like a totally unified front for the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um. At another point, he's talking against integration. And I think he has another really interesting thing to say about that. He says, um. Uh, the truth is that integration is an image. It's a foxy northern liberal smokescreen that confuses the true wants of the American black man. Here in these 50 racist and neo-racist states of North America, this word integration has millions of white people confused and angry, believing wrongly that the black masses want to live mixed up with the white man. That is the case only with the relative handfuls of those integration mad Negroes. Uh... And so kind of just making the point, and I, I think the valid point that like just having black people exist 
among white people isn't guaranteeing their equal treatment. No. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just because a black person is able to move into the suburbs among white people does not mean they're going to be treated the same way. Does no. not mean they've gained their rights. Uh, so, like, I don't know this. I mean, that's just like the tip of the iceberg for this book. But I think there's like so many interesting, relevant points that, you know, they're still applicable today about like how we go about um, fighting for equality um, for black people and minorities, especially with like the Black Lives Matter movement and arguments about peaceful protest versus the role or what happens with um, uh, property damage or riots and things like that. And just kind of like hearing different points about those subjects. Yeah. And I really want to talk about just like how passionate and how amazing he was as a speaker. And like, you can look back and watch videos of him talking and like, he's really one of the, I think more honest people at the time, like really exposing the truth of what was going on in the world. And while a lot of the civil rights leaders are like advocating and preaching for like equal treatment, civil rights, he's basically being like, fuck these guys. Like, this is what they really are. And I wanted to read another quote here. Um, It's totally indicative of how amazing of a speaker he is, is that we want to read all the quotes from him. (laughs) But um, he talks about how he's being interviewed by um, the white press. And they say, Mr. Malcolm X, why do you teach black supremacy and hate? A red flag wave for me. Something chemical happened inside me every time I hear that. When we Muslims had talked about the devil white man, he had been relatively abstract, someone we Muslims rarely actually came into contact with. But now here is that devil in the flesh on the phone, with all of his calculating, cold-eyed, self-righteous tricks and nerve and gall. The voices questioning me became to me as living, breathing devils. For the white man to ask the black man if he hates him is just like the rapist asking the raped or the wolf asking the sheep, do you hate me? The white man is in no moral position to accuse anyone else of hate. Why, when all my ancestors are snake-bitten, and I'm snake-bitten, and I warn my children to avoid snakes, what does that snake sound like accusing me of hate teaching? And I think that's so, I mean, it's still relevant when people say that, like, black people are being racist towards white people, and I'm like, that can't exist. Like, that can't happen. Yeah. Because, you know, white people have the power. So... That it means nothing. Like, how can you say that, that you're being oppressed? Yeah, yeah. And there's another point, too, when he makes the argument that, like, you know, America was such a hostile place towards black people. Yeah. But then when Malcolm was, like, you know, preaching and talking about, uh, you know, black people, like, leaving America or, like, going to Africa or starting their own country, they're like, what, you can't do that. And he's yeah. like, what do you people want? Yeah. <laughs> But I think, like, ultimately it's revealing that, like, white America prospered off the backs of black people for, like, not only, like, during slave times, but, like, you know, up into now, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that, like, they don't want black people to go because uh, it's, like, cheap labor, essentially, in so many ways. And that, like, the systems of oppression are meant to keep it that way. Yeah. I want to take like a little mini sidebar and just talk about Denzel Washington. We have to talk about Denzel Washington. Especially in these scenes where he's like speaking to the public when like the TV, he's on like TV and stuff. He just like disappears completely into the role. And 
I think you were mentioning this when we were talking after the film. Yeah, because, I mean, early on when he's, you know, Detroit Red and, like, doing his hustle and, like, like, he, you can definitely see Denzel Washington in all of his, like, charm and intensity. You know what I mean? Like, because he has, he does both of those so well in, like, the Russian roulette scene. Yeah. You know what I mean? Seemed like it could have been something out of Training Day. And, like, you can see kind of, like, him as a character actor in those scenes. But then as the movie evolves, and by the way, I don't think we mentioned this. This is like almost a three and a half hour film. Yeah. It is a long film. It is long. Uh, and But it is very interesting. I mean, first of all, how Denzel Washington transforms. Because yeah. like as it goes on, like especially like after prison and like into these scenes, like he completely embodies Malcolm X and he like disappears completely as an actor. There's so this, effectively. There's this part where he's watching the TV and we're seeing this footage of the civil rights um, protests and um, all of the people involved getting like beaten, hosed down, like just these awful things on the TV. And it keeps like zooming in on his face and his just like stare. It just is so, oh my God, it like sent chills down my spine. Cause I was like, you can just see his like righteous anger. Yeah. Just like, at this oppression, so. I watched a video of an acting coach, like, looking at different scenes in movies, and he talked about one of Denzel Washington. He was actually talking about the movie Book of Eli, mm-hmm. but he was talking in general about how good Denzel Washington is at what he called the inner monologue, mm. where, and I think it's more of a technique that actors use, but just, like, essentially, like, you look at their face and you can tell they're, like, working something out in their head. Yes, And I think Denzel Washington is so good at that. Just like with a look, he conveys so much, like Mm -hmm. such an intelligence and like such anger, but like closed up. And yeah. uh, And it's also just worth mentioning, too, that like as Denzel Washington transformed, so did the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like it felt so different. And I mean, like the story changes so much from like him being uh, this hustler robber Mm -hmm. and like, you know, um, guy in Harlem to being this political figure and you know um, person in the press and uh leading rallies and stuff like the film takes such an interesting transformation over these three hours and yeah. it like it doesn't lose anything or necessarily even gain anything it just changes it does and i think that says so much about spike lee as a director that he like kind of handled that because there was like a real life and energy and kind of craziness to like the early parts yes But then the later parts are, like, much more maybe nuanced and, like, quiet and, Mm -hmm. like, interesting and, um, yeah, I don't know, just, like... Thought-provoking. Yeah, yeah, just the way this movie was directed and, of course, Denzel just, you know, carrying it on his shoulders so effectively. Absolutely. And around this time, in both the book and the movie... Um, Malcolm ends up having some doubts about Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam that he's been following. And it's actually a very kind of multifaceted thing that happens because on the one hand, there's the fact that Malcolm finds out about Elijah Muhammad's affairs that he's had. And he's had these children with his secretaries. And the Nation of Islam Islam expressly forbids adultery and fornication. And anyone caught doing so is exiled. So to be faced with this, um, he really doesn't want to believe it at first. 
No. Um, but I also think it's like worth mentioning. And I, I think it's like incredibly impressive that like Malcolm goes out and like finds the women who are, you know, alleging that uh, Elijah Muhammad fathered their children. And he goes out and he talks to them. And I think that is especially what draws him to the conclusion that it's real and yeah, true. Yeah. But like the fact that he like, you know, sought out talking to those women and then believed them, mm-hmm. I think says a lot about him. Yeah. And in the movie, Betty kind of has a huge yeah. role in talking to him about this. They have this fight where she's basically like, don't be blind. Like the evidence is here before you. And not only that, um, Baines, your old friend from prison, is like not printing anything about you in the Muslim newspaper. Like he's spreading lies about you. You're kind of willfully ignoring all this stuff. And I think it does speak to the fact that Malcolm, for so many years, he said the evidence was before him, but he just didn't want to believe it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's kind of all these things like coming to a head kind of at the same time. Uh, you know, a lot of the nation of Islam kind of not trusting Malcolm anymore, wanting being jealous of him, being jealous, wanting to cover up these affairs that are going on. And, and and like, even if the evidence was there before him, like clearly so many other followers of nation of Islam, like they saw Elijah Muhammad as like God, a God on earth. Yeah. And like to be brought to the like point of questioning them like would take a lot like yeah uh you know i think malcolm x said and i think it's true that he was like probably like the most dedicated follower of nation of islam like Mm -hmm. um spoke on their behalf the strongest and like most was the most dedicated and like for him to like have to come to this conclusion that like their leader yeah yeah was extremely like completely shook him to his core i think Mm -hmm. and publicly Malcolm X makes some comments about the assassination of JFK that Elijah Muhammad views as opposing direct orders from him um, and so silences Malcolm X for 90 days. And this is like kind of what's on the surface and then everything below the surface are the things that we just mentioned, like the affairs, the jealousy within the nation of Islam and just kind of Malcolm in himself also kind of chafing under some of Elijah Muhammad's practices and wanting to distance himself a little bit and kind of evolving as a person a little bit as well. Yeah. And so around this time, uh, he decides to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. Mm-hmm. And in uh, more orthodox Eastern Islamic beliefs, like this is like kind of something that like everyone does in yeah. their life. Like as long as they're able to they take a pilgrimage to Mecca. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't something that Nation of Islam did. No. But I I think around this time, like, um, because he was, like, doubting his own beliefs and wanting to learn more about, like, traditional Islam, yeah. he decides to, like, take this trip. And his half-sister, Ella, actually gives him the money so he's able to go. Yeah, this was such a... That was such an important part to me in the story. And I get, once again, like, one of those things that kind of gets, like, cut out of the, the movie. Yeah. But Ella's role in his life, 
Um, it's so important. It is. And especially just like as a strong black woman, mm-hmm. I really wish had been maybe kept in the film. Yeah. The fact that like she was actually saving up money for this trip for herself. So she could go. So she could go. And then she chooses to give the money to Malcolm. Yeah. So he can go. By the way, there's fireworks going off outside. I don't know how audible they it's are. It's the season of fireworks. God fucking damn it. I just wish fireworks were illegal. I, <laughs> I hate fireworks so much. I just can't. I can't stand them. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> He goes to Mecca, and this is a transformative experience for him. And he views this in the book. He talks about how he's kind of coming into true Islam for him. Um, and he converts to Sunni Islam and breaks with the nation of Islam here. And he's meeting so many people from yeah. so many countries and all different shades. He talks about black, brown um, white, even Muslims coming to do this pilgrimage and finding this brotherhood and camaraderie and spirituality in each other that he has never felt before. Yeah. And kind of realizing that like so many of the problems, the, the, the race problems, uh, that he experienced weren't so much like inherent flaws of like, like biologically between people of different races, but like flaws of American society. Yes. And like, I mean, more than just American society, Western society, Western, yeah. Capitalism. Like there's a lot of things that go into that, but like he was getting this glimpse at like people from all walks of life, all different racial backgrounds, like coming together in such a natural, easy way that he was like, Oh my God, like it's, actually like possible yeah and this kind of like completely kind of i don't want to say completely shifts his perspective um but it does kind of alter his view to an extent where he's like maybe white people aren't like the literal devil (laughs) he's like i'll still criticize them but yeah. he does open himself up to the fact that there are, may be some white people that don't want to actively oppress black people and that they themselves are also caught in this system. Yeah. Um, and he talks about like the systems of white supremacy and how, you know, America is just so built on these ideas and concepts that it's really hard to disentangle from them. And he also talks about how he felt that the young people of America could possibly make change and that he hoped for that. And that he hoped that I really liked the way that he described how he later on wanted white people to help. Yeah. Because previously he basically said like white people can't help. Like white people can't yeah. do anything in like the black <laughs> struggle. There was like one specific instance that was both in book and film where this like like enthusiastic young white woman mm-hmm. approaches him and is like, you know, I want to help. I want to help. Like, tell me what, what can I do to help? Tell me. And he's like, nothing. Yeah. And he just kind of like, like I... walks right past her. Yeah. And I, I was actually kind of like surprised. Cause later on he like thought he like reflected on that, like at least in the book and he like kind of regretted that. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of like a change in his opinion that like, I was a little surprised at like, mm-hmm. I don't think like his story like needed this shift to be softer towards white people. No, um, I didn't need it. <laughs> no, no, I didn't either. Um, but I do think it is because like, I hope like since this time that like white people have at least become better allies to an extent like those that want to be. And like, obviously, white people are still constantly figuring out the best way to be allies and like, you know. Yeah, and not to put the burden on black folks. Yeah. I just thought like 
when he talked about it in the book, I forget what part exactly, but he was like, I'm still going to have my black organization and white people can't join. He's like, Mm -hmm. we need to do this. This is our struggle. We need to be united. But he's like, white people, you need to form your own organizations that are anti-racist and that help you work on yourselves together. And this is like, to me, this is like the things that I'm realizing today. Yeah. And the conversations that are happening today when black people are like, it's not our job to educate you. (laughs) Yeah. We're still having to go like white people keep asking people of color, like, tell me what to do. What books do I read? And especially like in today, like... I get it maybe more back then yeah. when it was like uncharted like, territory. Yes. Maybe. To like, I don't know how to help as a white person, like help black people now fucking Google it. Yeah. Like Google books as a white person to read, to not be racist. Yeah. And you'll get like so many books. But that idea that like it's on white people yes. to figure out our shit. Like yeah. we have to figure out how to be anti-racist. We have to figure out how to be allies. You know, we have to figure out how to dismantle these systems and like not rely on black people to do the work for us. So I think like reading this, I was like, wow, like this resonates to me so much. And it was so cool to read about, you know, Malcolm being like really touched by this spiritual experience. And also he travels to Africa and meets tons of um, African diplomats and leaders in all of these African countries and is really making connections between, you know, the American black man and the black folks that live in Africa and wanting to connect them and wanting to be closer and to know that like your struggles are our struggles and that we can unite for a greater good. Yeah, and and especially talking about, like, visiting Africa in, like, such a positive light and meeting, like, so many strong, impactful leaders. And because, I mean, even today, like, I still think the narrative around Africa is, like, you picture those, like, commercials that are, like, please help this, like, child in need that's starving. And, like, that's, like, so many people's idea of Africa still. When really is, it's such a multi, I mean, there's so many countries in Africa. It's a whole continent and yeah. people like will still be like this, the country of Africa. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, and like, yeah, there are, it's a whole continent. There are struggles in Africa, but like, I think reading about it from that perspective is also really important. Yeah. And Malcolm also at this time changes his name to um, El Haj Malik El Shabazz. And, um, he kind of refers to himself in this way. I mean, still uses Malcolm X and people refer to him as Malcolm yeah. X, but kind of adopts this new identity a bit. I actually thought this could have been a really interesting structure for the film in a way, in a way that like, it makes me think of uh, Moonlight. Mm. Cause remember in Moonlight, it was the three acts were divided between different like, names. The, the different names he took. And like yeah. in this book, like Detroit Red, Detroit Red, Malcolm uh, X, Malcolm X in prison, he was called Satan. Yeah. Uh, and then El Shabazz, um, mm-hmm. you know, like he kind of like almost incrementally, like at the same points, like throughout his life, he kind of take he like adopts like a new name and kind of like, but it's like he's evolving. He is. And I think that's one of, I think the most impressive things about Malcolm X and he, and he talks about it. I think he's very aware of it that like he tries to be an open minded person. And I, I think he is in like a lot of ways. And like the last year of his life really shows his ability to adapt and mm-hmm. grow um, and to be willing to admit when he was wrong. And he talks about being like, I was kind of, 
you know, following blindly a bit the, the nation of Islam. Like it, there were a lot of things I agree with, but other things that I grew to, to realize were not correct or I didn't believe anymore. Um, and later on in his life, after making this pilgrimage and traveling in Africa, he was working more with the civil rights leaders and wanting yeah. to work more to better black people. And, you know, founding his own mosque that was, um, kind of embracing people of all different religions and being more accepting in general. Um, unfortunately, his life was cut short, and so we didn't get to see, like, what he could have become. Yeah, and, and this is um, kind of like a an interesting divergence between, at this point, the book and the film, because he yeah. returns um, from his pilgrimage and his travels abroad, and is is kind of a changed man to an extent. And I think the movie captured this well, too. Like, just hearing him talk, like, he's not as, like, he doesn't seem like he's as pissed off or angry. Yeah. Like, he's still just as passionate. Yes. Um, but there is kind of a change in how he talks and, like, he seems a little softer now. Mm-hmm. Um, but around this time, too, he also is aware that, like, the press about him has only grown worse that like the nation of Islam has only grown like more hostile towards him. Yeah. And he's kind of, he, at least for a while, it's, it seems like by the book that like he's expected uh, an attack on his life. Yeah. He tells Alex Haley that he doesn't expect to see the book published, which is crazy. Yeah. And like they are getting death threats you know, at their house that are being called into his wife and to himself. And there's an incident where his house is bombed and they barely make it out of the house. I love how in the movie they kind of compare this to his childhood terror of his house burning down when the Ku Klux Klan was threatening his father. Yeah, and this is one... There's a couple moments near the end of this film in particular that, like, Spike Lee does such an amazing job of, like, creating points uh just through editing or filmmaking style and this is one that like despite the progress that like malcolm x is like making i think in terms of like um raising black people up and making them aware of like their own oppression and things like despite all the steps he's taken like here's an event going on that almost perfectly mirrors something that happened in his own life yeah like like 40 years ago yeah and it's just like just by cutting back and forth between that past event and the current one, like you get it. Yeah. And it's kind of this like really sad moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the book ends there. There is a long epilogue. Yeah. In the epilogue, Alex Haley talks about um, his assassination and details like kind of the aftermath and his thoughts on, you know, Malcolm and their partnership um, in writing his autobiography and everything. And it was really cool to read about, um, but obviously the movie wanted to kind of wrap it up a little more. Yeah. So we actually get to, you know, we see the part where he dies and he's killed. Um, And I don't know, it's just like really tragic. (laughs) There is, yeah, this, the scene leading up to this though, I think is one of the most beautiful of the film yeah where he is leaving his hotel room to go to this uh speaking engagement he has and the song a change is gonna come starts playing and i 
love that song so much. Like it's one of my favorite songs. I think it's so good Mm -hmm. and it's just so beautiful. And I think so it resonates so well with that scene. It's like very sad, but kind of like uplifting in a way. And there's a shot in particular. And once this is another moment where Spike Lee just like knocks it out of the park where it's Malcolm going down the sidewalk, like walking. Yeah. But really it's him. I think like probably just standing on like a, um, like a trolley, like a little, um, moving platform. Mm -hmm. And so he's not moving. He's just sliding forward. Like you can't see his feet. He's just sliding forward as this music plays. And it, resonates so well because like first of all it's almost like a dreamlike state that he's in yeah and secondly it's like he knows that he's facing his own death at this point he knows it's coming and it's like he's on train tracks yeah it's like there's almost like nothing he can do to avoid it he's just being pulled towards it yeah and just by doing that one unique shot i think that connects with the audience so well and this was like going into this movie like, I think we all know what the typical, like, biopic is yeah. in filmmaking. And this movie is that in a lot of ways. But I'm like, Spike Lee is a very inventive and creative uh, filmmaker that brings a lot of life and energy to his films. And I was excited to see what he would do with this movie that could easily have been, like, a standard biopic. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. one great performance by an actor playing a historical figure. Everything else doesn't matter. Like, that yeah. kind of film. Um, but like moments like these are like where he really elevated, I think this movie and just brought it to a whole new level. I agree. And then the film also has this really great ending where we see kind of like the legacy of Malcolm X in terms of like being taught in schools. And then we also get a Nelson Mandela cameo, yeah, <laughs> which is probably like the greatest cameo you could ever have in a movie. Cause I think we were both like. Is that really Nelson Mandela? And I'm yeah. like, I'm pretty like, cause it was from 92, but I'm like that, I think that's him. Yeah. And like making the connection that like his legacy lives on and like people are inspired by him, you know, today as well. So I think that really resonated. I like how the movie starts and how it ends kind of making connections yeah, to the past to the, and present. To the present. Yeah, I mm-hmm. agree. I think like that was another really, cause I mean, I think those period pieces are like, they get so focused on like that time period and like, you know, kind of showing the details of that and everything. But yeah. like, how does this, why are we telling the story now? Why is this story important now? And I think Spike Lee like never forgets that. Exactly. I think he's always aware of why he's telling this story mm-hmm. currently. So, and we're not going to like super get into it, but there is some question over his Malcolm X's death. And like, was it nation of Islam? Was it just a couple people who were not affiliated or who were kind of affiliated with nation of Islam, but weren't under direct orders from Elijah Muhammad to kill him? Like how much was the nation of Islam involved Uh, or was the FBI or CIA, the FBI or CIA involved. And in fact, like at the time of his assassination, there was supposed to be a police presence guarding the ballroom that he was speaking in. And at the time when he was shot, there were no police anywhere. Yeah. None. So whether it was willful ignorance or knowledge of what was going to happen and then kind of not stopping it, which is also like being um, an accomplice to it. Yeah. Being just as culpable. Yeah. Being just as culpable. Or if they were actively involved in carrying out 
his assassination is um, uncertain. And there's actually like a documentary series on Netflix. Yeah, it's uh, I think just called Who Who Killed Malcolm X. And I, I actually wanted to watch it um, earlier today in preparation for the episode. But then I realized it's not a movie. It's actually like a six part miniseries. Yeah, I definitely want to watch it still. Um, it because I mean, the book came out just like very right, shortly right after he died. after he died. So like I, I'm. Sure, there's like more details and more things about like, you know, the different involvements of like either Nation of Islam or the government and like mm-hmm. what exactly happened. So like, I definitely want to watch that. But I think we also wanted to keep it because I mean, there's so much you could. I know read. this is unfortunately not an episode about the person Malcolm X. This is about comparing the book to the movie. So like, we did have to kind of pick and choose on what yeah. we could talk about. But there's so much on Malcolm X. There are other biographies um, that you can read, um, books, movies, uh, docu- documentaries, mm-hmm. etc. So yeah, yeah, and uh, but that that brings us to the end of both versions. I think. Yep. Which I'm proud of us. I'm looking at the time. <laughs> For a three and a half hour movie and a 500 page, page book. book, I think we did pretty well on this one. So which one's better? Um, this is so weird when it's like a real story. It is. It, it is. And it feels like, the. I mean, we never take this seriously in reality. Yeah. Um, this question. Yeah. This question of like, which is better. Uh, and so I guess starting off by saying like, giving ourselves a cop out that like, you can't really compare them, but we'll. We yeah. Will anyway, <laughs> um, I will say the book, uh, just because I mean it's from the man himself. It's his story. It's so in depth. It's you know like to me, I'm like, are there other biographies of Malcolm X? Because like, what else could you possibly? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I mean, arguably, you know, you do have to question like his um, take on events. Yeah, his, his take on events. Yeah, and like you know how accurate he is or um so that is something to consider as well but uh yeah going into this it was funny because i was like i don't know i'm like i know some some things about you know martin luther king um but i'm like i don't really know much of all at all about malcolm x like i could probably write a two-page a two-sentence summary (laughs) on everything i know about him and probably be half wrong um so reading this book and like by the end of it i was like wow I feel like I know so much about Malcolm X now, and I'm only now realizing how little I know about Martin Luther King when I thought I knew stuff. So Yeah, it's just, I'm going to have to go with the book as well. Yeah. It's, you learn so much, not just about Malcolm, but like, like I was saying about the culture of Harlem at the time, mm-hmm. um, what was going on during the war, um, what was going on during the civil rights, and about Islam, about so much. Like, you learn so much, and I feel... Like you really take away a lot and you think about a lot. So it's like it's such a rich book that I just have to recommend it. Definitely check yeah, it out. Yeah, it's 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 a heavy it's a heavy book <laughs> in weight yes. um, and page count. It, it's it's a pretty dense book. But I mean, I was shocked. There are parts that for me dragged a bit. Um, but like, honestly, it took a while to get there yeah. to those parts. Like it was a pretty good entertaining it's it is it really is it wasn't i was worried it was going to be super dry mm-hmm. um but it definitely is and i think so much of that credit goes to just the life malcolm x led and also the writing of alex haley yeah uh so yeah it's definitely worth checking out but also a huge amount of credit to the movie the movie's also really good that 
encapsulated so much of his life and his importance and significance in doing it in a way that was entertaining and honestly didn't feel like three and a half hours. No. So that's also worth mentioning. Yeah. So it's it's book, but we still like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're not shunning it. <laughs> Let's do lightning rounds. Let's do a lightning. So uh, the first thing worth mentioning is that like the this movie getting like produced actually went through like a lot of uh trouble not like actually being filmed but like in terms of like the budget Mm -hmm. um they didn't want to give spike lee asked for like 33 million to have it made um and they're like no you can have 20 million and we want it two hours and 15 minutes and uh but then spike wanted to make it longer but like to have it produced he actually like gave up a lot of his salary and also another thing i read was just like denzel what is it denzel washington put up his salary to get this film made wow so, um, but yeah, and then, uh, it got halted in post-production. So then Spike Lee had to like, uh, go to other people, uh, to like try to get in funding, uh, including, um, Michael Jordan and, uh, Bill Cosby, which you actually see their faces mm-hmm. at the end of this film, which I'm guessing is why. Yeah. A little um, homage to them. Yeah. And I wonder if that hat, they're wearing those hats. I wonder if that was like, actually like. From the production of the film. Hmm. Now that I think. Because they were wearing those hats with X's on them. Yeah. Like was that like a a thing at the time? Like I, I, I didn't understand that. But now I'm guessing like because they helped finance the movie. Yeah. They were. Okay. So that makes sense. <laughs> I'm actively piecing this together as I discuss it. But um, I, I, I'm just like obviously it's amazing that Spike Lee fought so hard to get the movie made that he wanted to be made. Yeah. And I think uh, everyone's happy that he did. Exactly. So I just want to mention this part in the book where Malcolm is trying to avoid getting drafted into World War II because black people were expected to fight for this stupid war that they had like no involvement in. Yeah. Um, but he's like, I'm going to do everything I can to act crazy so that they won't um, draft me. And I'm going to change a specific word in here um, just so you know. So suddenly I sprang up and peeped under both doors, the one I'd enter and another that probably was a closet. And then I bent and whispered fast in his ear, Daddy-o, now you and me, we're from up north here, so don't you tell nobody. I want to get sent down south. Organize them black soldiers, you dig? Steal us some guns and kill up crackers. <laughs> that psychiatrist blue pencil dropped and his professional manner fell off in all directions. He stared at me as if I were a snake's egg hatching, fumbling for his red pencil. I knew I had him. I was going back out past Miss First when he said, that will be all. A 4F card came to me in the mail, and I never heard from the army anymore, and never bothered to ask why I was rejected. (laughs) (laughs) He was just so smart. And and I love, too, he talks a lot many times about, like, white people could never, like, even conceive of the fact that a black person would be, like, tricking them. Yeah. Like, to them, like, that wasn't even... He talked, like, a, a couple times about, like... One time they got pulled over by the cops and he did it like on two different times when like they got pulled over and either they had just robbed a place and he got out of the car immediately and went up to the officers. He's like, excuse me, like, is this this street? Like, where do I go? Yeah. For, like, dumb. Yeah. And they would like give him directions and then he would just take off. <laughs> but I just love his rationale. It's like white people can't even imagine that you would be fooling them. Yeah. Um, there's a part in the book and the movie that I'm glad they kept, but is so funny and weird, but they're talking about how they don't eat pigs. Yeah. And in the, the line is given by, um, uh, the, the guy in prison, Baines, like, Baines in the film where he talks about like, they don't eat pigs. And he just says that like a pig is a graft of 
a dog, a cat, and a rat. <laughs> and I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad animal. Like, I want to, <laughs> like, I mean, pigs are already cool in my opinion, but like, I would love to see what a cat, rat, and dog fused together would look like. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So last for lightning round, there's a part in both the book and the movie where Malcolm is in prison and kind of debates the Christian minister in prison about, um, was Jesus white? Um, and of course there's more discourse now about the fact that, uh, Jesus as a Hebrew and someone who lived in the middle East at this time was a person of color. Um, but of course this was not like the discussion at the time yeah. and he like totally blew these like prisoners minds basically <laughs> being like, and this and this and this and this. So Jesus was black and everyone's like, oh. <laughs> and the priest is just like so pissed off. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's such great. a great scene. Uh, and that's it for lightning round for us on this book and movie adaptation. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, like we said, we've been meaning to do Malcolm X for a while. I'm so glad we got to. Mm-hmm. Definitely check out the book. Check out the movie. It's really great to learn about um, such a informative like text about history and about this time and about this person. Um, yeah. And it was, it was just really fun to do and to talk about and to get to think about. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, we are on Patreon. Uh, we uh, release bonus episodes around monthly. Uh, our next bonus episode is actually we decided to watch and discuss uh, Do the Right Thing. Spike Lee's, like, I think probably really breakout movie. Yeah. Uh, that I, neither of us has seen, at least not in its entirety. Yeah. And this seemed like a great time to get to watch that and discuss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you become a patron, you'll get access to all of our bonus episodes in addition to uh, the monthly upcoming episode schedule. And we also take uh, your suggestions and kind of like really push them up in our uh, queue of upcoming episodes. Yeah. Um, So if any of that sounds interesting, find us on Patreon. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook. And then you can email us at coveredcreditspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from patrons. It seriously makes us so happy um, just to hear your thoughts on you know, this episode, other episodes you listen to, episode ideas you have for the future. Um, and if you can, giving us um, a star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you listen is super helpful and helps other people find the podcast as well. Yes, yes. And uh, thanks so much for listening again. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.